Hi, it's Sharon Swing. Before we get started on today's podcast, there are two opportunities we would love to invite you to join us in. One is a Listen to My Life, Maps for Recognizing and Responding to God in My Story. It's a life mapping virtual group that will be starting September 10th. I'll be leading that along with Joan Kelly and Sybil Towner. We would love to have you join us. Second thing, a live in-person workshop in the Chicago area for people who want to lead others through the life mapping experience of Listen to My Life. We would love to have you find out more information at onelifemaps.com. That's O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S dot com. You'll see a link to those two opportunities off of the front page. Now for our podcast. Welcome to the One Life Maps podcast. Here's your host and co-author of Listen to My Life, Maps for Recognizing and Responding to God in My Story, Sharon Swing. Welcome. This is Sharon Swing along with Joan Kelly and Sybil Towner. We are so glad to have you joining us again today. Today we're going to be talking about life questions and why they matter. Life questions. Basically, the different kinds of questions we ask over time, either consciously or unconsciously, that shape our perceptions of who we are, who God is, and our place in the world, how the world works, in fact, too. And so we're going to jump in a little bit here, and uh, we use this particular set of questions in this handout that we have that I'll put a link to in the show notes when we're doing Listen to My Life and traveling through there. And it's a great way to help us reflect on our life story and and understand a little bit more about what questions got answered in a healthy way and which ones were left undone. And sometimes what gets left over that we carry forward in our lives that um, still has created some eggs. Yeah, and 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 lingers for a while. So, let's dive in, Sybil. What kind of an introduction do you want to give to this particular topic of life questions? Well, I think we're asking questions about our life, whether we know it or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, sometimes uh, we might even ask the question, "Why is it that I don't like?" Or why is it that I don't go here or there? Um, and we just kind of brush it off and just say, oh, well, that's just kind of the way I am. But they, they do surface and they're, they're really kind of simple questions, um, that, uh, don't seem scary. Um, but if we take and dip into them, they usually connect to some portion of our story that we've either sort of wanted to delete and it's kind of the question that is unscary at the surface or um, not penetrating. And then if we stay with it, then often another question emerges or a noticing emerges. Like um, another one, uh, people who have experienced grief often have, uh, during a period when that loss occurred, have some kinds of feelings. And uh, sometimes we'll say, I always seem to be kind of sad in uh, August. Well, I guess I better do something about that. And mm-hmm. then they just do something about that, not realizing that that question is a possible invitation to explore more deeply where you are right now, what happened that was hard, or it can even be on something beautiful, because mm-hmm. a lot of times we're not willing to recognize the beauty of who we are, because somewhere in our story, the beauty of who we are, we were uh, looked at as being too forward, or, you know, why do you always talk all the time? Well, that might have been my beautiful gift, and so I just kind of dumbed down or shut down a bit more of who I am. So anyway, life questions are always being asked. So you're, so what I hear you saying, Sybil, is there's power in sitting with the questions and being, I guess, aware of 
questions, being curious, yeah. being yeah. curious about yourself and about God and maybe not so much putting so much energy into finding the next answer. Right. In fact, um, a quote by Parker Palmer is, the work is living into the questions. Mm-hmm. So first of all, it's noticing them. Yeah. And yeah, actually a journal entry could be, what kinds of questions did I ask today? Mm-hmm. Was What was I curious about? And just writing them with just an awareness of that. Mm-hmm. And then, then just seeing where they go, mm-hmm. kind of following their trail. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we are so anxious to get the right answer. Right. And that is not really the purpose of the bigger questions in life. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and some people are more wired to try to find that right answer than others. Along well, the we've way. been trained to do that since yes. first grade, right? My dear, ACT tests want the right mm-hmm. answer. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. <laughs> my life depends on it. My future. Yeah. The uh, With Listen to My Life, there's a My Life story map where it's actually a timeline, but it's got some layers to it. And, you know, there are the places, the events that happened and the highs and the lows and, and all in the midst of all of that. And um, you, could, you can map your life story just by where you lived and what you did and what, you know, what happened at various different points in time. But these particular questions give us another layer, another way to reflect on that story as to what did I receive and what did I not receive? Mm-hmm. Um, what was I given that I want to leave behind and what do I want to take with me? Um, these kinds of sorting out really bring us to um, a quote by John Calvin that's really informative and helpful here. Joan, would you read that for us? Yeah, it says, uh, there is no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self and no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. So one of the reasons someone might not want to explore this more deeply is what their image of God is. Mm. Well, I, or worried that God won't even speak yes, to them. Yeah, right. So, so why, why even ask the right, question? Right. This, the aspect of not being heard or not being understood sometimes puts me in a place of just saying, why bother? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is really true. But the the beauty of this, and that's the invitation we're moving into, is that the practice of doing this, and I would call these questions a part of um, a part of practice. And if we do that, our our um, will be encouraged in our spiritual growth and it will produce gratitude and trust in God over time. Mm-hmm. It will take us to a good place. So the other thing I would say for those of us who are in the journey of growing in Christ, there is someone who is at work in our lives to try to help us stay where we are, and it is the father of lies. Mm-hmm. just to keep us sort of copacetic and kind of saying this is as good as it gets. Right. And so I just would say there is a force. It's not just us. There is a force within our culture that doesn't want us to get to the responses and the fruit and the goodness of those questions. Right. The the aspect of different occurrences in our life, recognizing that, that significant memories or even sometimes what seems to be insignificant memories, tell us something about who we are and our own self-perception, about who God is and how the world works. And these questions kind of dig in that uh, a little bit. So, Sybil, can you give us the first question from early childhood, zero to five years old? or so, um, is the age range that this particular question relates to? Well, first of all, what you're really looking for when you're zero to five, and you're looking to it just in the essence of who you are, is, am I loved? So, so now, here we are at whatever age we are, looking back, and we're looking and 
who saw us, who loved us unconditionally? Where did that transmit? Um, uh, the, way, the way Kirk Thompson says this, he says, when we come out of the birth canal, we're looking for someone who's looking for us. I love that quote. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so uh, so anyway, so that's what we're looking for. And somehow when someone actually sees us, that is a kairos connection. That's a God connection. Even if you don't know how to express God's name, mm-hmm. God has been at work there. This person sees me. This person gets me and uh, and so uh, <clears throat> so and so that's a key question to be asked and then just uh, wait a second so the first question once again is in early childhood ages around zero to five it's not like we stop asking this question but that's when that question forms it's is really most I, significant it mm-hmm. it, yeah. it it lays uh, foundations yes and it it's a foundation that we follow the rest of our lives. Once again, the question is, am I beloved? Yes. And so then we transition into the 6 to 11 and elementary kind of ages. And the question, the core question there is, what can I do? Yes. So you start to, to recognize when you're hanging out with kids that, uh, you know, they want to try all kinds of stuff. They want to try what their older siblings are trying or the older kids down the street or whatever. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm watching three siblings uh, that live next door to us as they grow and and just the desire of the youngest one to be so much more advanced than his years. Yes. And that what can I do thing. He's right in this age frame. And even when you are young, you're doing. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the amount of learning and doing, learning to walk and all of that. But the the core piece is, am I beloved? And now in that 6 to 11, what can I do? And so you've got these two pieces that are the essence of life forming that follow us all of our life, beloved and competency. What can I do? And so it begins to fill in, where is my place in the world? It's also developmental. In the, uh, in the early childhood, we, are, um, we need big spaces. Um, we, and we get the big ideas about God, which it's funny, people don't think about that, but children have quite the capacity to take in all of the dimensions that we think about Santa Claus that actually belong to God. Mm-hmm. They can get he's all-knowing. They can get that he, uh, he is ever-present, omnipresent. And, uh, and so when a child finds out that isn't true, it really uh, dismantles a bit of that who God is. But now in this 5 to, um, five to 11 or 6 to 11, we begin small muscle development. So eye-hand-ball coordination. So we're asking and we're learning to read, we're learning to ride a bike, um, and we're asking the more detailed questions. So children that have the capacity to help in projects around the house or um, if they're a part of a preschool or school, teachers who make sure that children get to know how to set up, help set up or tear down or put together a classroom Anything they get to do in that age range is beneficial to them. And children who um, have losses in that area, sometimes it's a divorce, sometimes it's an ill parent, sometimes it might be a sibling who is uh, not well in a family. There are all sorts of things. And so some of the competency development can get missed. Mm. Um, They... They don't, they don't do the normal play out in the backyard or they become overly responsible for uh, watching a younger sibling or preparing a meal when really the better thing is to have done it with somebody who is a little bit older and uh, have that sort of communal experience and a proper authority in their life. So being and doing, and you notice the order of that, we 
in our adult world, we often do to be. We do a lot to have a moment of acceptance. And, um, you know, Sharon, you know where I'm going in that wheel chart of, uh, of achievement and that. But this really follows first beloved, and that's what we're looking for, then the competency, and then we go to the third. You go into the um, adolescent age, and for the first time, again, you're exploding into a young man or a young woman, mm -hmm. and in that explosion, you're putting together for the first time those two questions. Am I beloved, and what can I do? And if there's an impoverishment in either of those areas in your uh, first 11, 12 years, now it begins to show up. Mm -hmm. And you begin to see it in attachment. You begin to see ambivalent attachment. You begin to see avoidant attachment. And you also see in those who have received it, you really see secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And in way extremes, you have... Um, well, you can have disordered, but there's another word for it, um, attachment, but it's, um, it's really the inability to attach well in extreme cases of trauma and, uh, and extreme neglect. We'll have to do a whole other episode on attachment yes. theory. Yeah. So your early childhood question, zero to five, is am I beloved? Six to 11, elementary age, what can I do? And then in 12 to 20 in adolescence, who am I as they come together? So they're the self-perception um, of what am I good at and what do people accept me for? Yes. Um, all of those questions kind of come to a, to a head there. And right in this age, you have to understand that our, that our culture also feeds some things about, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? Right. And, and, and we, we start asking that question of kids for really early. And then, of, of course, at the age range in which kids are making decisions about college or vocational training or, you know, what, what's your major going to be, um, all of those kinds of things happen so early and this who am I question is, is even more challenging and difficult for kids that don't have the foundation of am I beloved and what can I do answered in a healthy way. Well, and think about the world right then for them, right? So who's telling them who they are? Social yeah. media, you know, TV. Um, cultural norms. Cultural for... norms, yeah. Friends, yeah. they're looking to friends. And, and in that culture, you know, we have had the privilege of, of being parents. We can look back and say where the culture impacted us mm -hmm. and what we tried to do or not do with our kids that as we reflect today, we say, why was I so uptight about that? Or, you know, I, and I realized I just sort of took the word of the culture or my church community, mm -hmm. and it wasn't really maybe the best or truest word for the child I was raising. Mm -hmm. But in that, in that, who am I? I would say the best place or the best way for a young person, and today our, we have a delayed adolescence. This period used to go up to 17 or 18, mm -hmm. if you went back 50 years ago. Now it goes into the mid-20s, um, be just because of the way um, in our Western culture, particularly, that um, children are being raised. So... The best way, I think, is to provide opportunities for service. And in our churches, for the most part, we tend to do something to teenagers. We tend to give them a talk. We, we tend to um, do things that border more on what I would call entertainment rather than putting them in places of service. Mm -hmm. I, I, would, um, you know, I would say to a group of young people, I would say, I want to know 
what is going to be your place of service? Are you going to be a referee for a younger ball team? Are you going to work in your church's uh, children's program? Are you going to work, if you're a high school person, in some way in the... Uh, uh, in the junior high uh, program, whatever it's called. What are you going to try? Yes, and so it's an it's an it's an age of exploration, and a lot of times we get the way like youth sports works. For example, if you don't play soccer by the time you're five, the chances of you getting to play soccer in high school or something is, is slim to none. Yeah. If you don't specialize in a particular sport in a lot of these larger schools and all. There's there's no way if that's if that's part of 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 who you think you are, um, in a healthy or unhealthy way. But especially then you you see parents. I've, I was just around a, a a travel league, you know, youth travel league kind of a situation, and they're getting to the age where they're getting recruited by colleges, and you know you can just kind of see very very quickly. Um, some of the parents and how they're kind of living out their thing through their kids, you know, how highly invested they are in every move their kid makes on the field. The interesting thing is that when we're talking about adolescence and, and when we're really talking about because they're within families, a very interesting thing is going on with their parents. Now, uh, it's a little shifted in our culture today because there are a number of people who have children at an older age, and so it doesn't quite fit in the bell-shaped uh, sort of curve. But in about the late 30s, early 40s, the parents are having a second adolescent. They've lived enough life, and they're wondering what it is, what their identity is, and who they are. Okay. And they're dealing with their adolescents who are asking that question for the first time. And one of the things that happens the first time you're asking that question, again, you don't know you're asking that question, but you watch the behavior of any adolescent. They're dressing like somebody from whatever team their favorite uh, city team is. They're listening to a particular music and wearing some of that person's garb. They're trying on mm -hmm. who they are. And uh, so anyway, at that age, there is normally a time when the divine spark comes in. It may be a kid who's gone on a mission trip and sees something that says, I think, I think something could be done here. Or they give something. They, they just say, all right, this place needs water. I'm going to do something about that. And they may do something at the moment, but maybe life happens to them. But there is a divine spark of making the world a more beautiful place that happens with most teenagers. Then it gets buried in life, in whatever is post-high school work, in marriage or single life, family. And then in the late 30s, early 40s, it reemerges. And the question gets asked again, what is life all about and who am I? And now you ask it again. So the clash between a parent and an adolescent sometimes has an underground sort of surface that both are sort of trying to answer the same question and wishing the, neither one were asking it. Well, and, and I want my kid to fulfill dreams that I assume they have because those are mine. Yes. So we're, we're just doing a great job of projecting onto right. our kids. And we're both kind of unaware that it's going on. Exactly. Except exactly. as an that, adult, I see it in my kid. <laughs> Does I, this, this is very like fascinating. set up for a conflict? This is a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. I need counseling. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, does any, <laughs> I was going to say, does anybody, do you remember a time, Sybil or Joan, when you sensed that... Uh, that like I have to do something about this kind of a in that adolescent time when you oh wait a minute this is something I can contribute oh yeah I, I mean I remember um, at 16 I mean having um, I mean receiving 
kind of a, a vision for living a life Godward and and really that it involved people. And um, I, I couldn't have totally articulated it to you, but it happened in the context of working with people in the church. It happened in the context of with youth. And I just knew I really felt good in that space. When you think about how perfect the church is as a place, if the church is structured in that way, to give kids an opportunity to try a lot of different things and serve in a lot of different ways, and uh, and and kids without that particular kind of environment, um, I wonder where they where they get those opportunities to serve or even have a perspective that that service is something that can help them to explore their own identity. Yeah. Well, sometimes it happens in family. You know, there, there'll be a family who, um, they just happen to be the family. Somebody's ill. They just make a meal. It goes. And the people and the, and the kids in the family see what happens. Or somebody's in trouble and they watch the kids. Or their home is the home where everybody comes because somehow they're welcomed. So this is really going on all the time. But what happens is it doesn't get named. And so it, it's their families, um, this is just a particular thing, who really use money well. I mean, they steward it well, but they never talk about it in the family of mm-hmm. why they steward it well and how they steward it. So a kid grows up and say, well, you know, it was never, it, it was something that was always available and, and we sort of made decisions, but I, I don't know how my parents got to it. Mm-hmm. That's the that's what the church or a family or if even someone's in a group home, take these young people in to the process and let them then begin to explore and ask questions. Mm-hmm. And if you have young people in serving places, you move out of the cultural milieu. In the cultural milieu, if you go to a high school, you have geeks, you have sports you have theater people, you have music people, you have sort of, we're not going to do, we're going to be different than all of those people. And that's how people get grouped, or the beautiful people and the non-beautiful people, the smart people and the not smart people. But you put people into a soup kitchen together, serving next to each other, and all of a sudden that goes away. And and the geek over here is standing next to the sports person over here, and they actually begin to have a conversation and just say, oh, my gosh, you're a real person. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, was what I so desperately wanted, was young people to develop honest relationships that weren't sexually oriented at their first drop. And I don't mean being inappropriate, but just could this be my girlfriend mm-hmm. or could this be my boyfriend? No, let's see what it would be like if this were your friend. Mm-hmm. And if they developed healthy friendships, then the other things would come in due time in a wonderful way. Mm. I, I, you can see I could like to talk about this for a little bit longer, but <laughs> yeah. we'll go on. We'll keep moving. Okay, yes. so once again, early childhood, the core question, am I beloved in elementary era, uh, era? What can I do in adolescence? Who am I? So now we're to young adulthood. Um, ages approximately 24 to 34 with the core question of what can I live my life for and with whom? And that is the question of intimacy. And when you think of the word intimacy, just slow it down and say it. In to me see. So it's about knowing and being known. And so who will I live with? You just think of um, you have had someone who has gone to a new city to live, found a roommate and work. And one of the things that that person wondered about was, who will my friends be? Mm-hmm. And and where, where will I belong? But not in the total same way at college. They're now living life in a, in a broader sense and really wanting wanting to 
really contribute, but also be known in that contribution and be encouraged in that space and, uh, and life. And so you're thinking about, will I marry or who will become close friends? And will the work that I'm doing be meaningful? And I think there's a lot of work that many of us have done that we wouldn't say was important at the time, but wasn't meaningful mm -hmm. in the long term. And, and so um, it's kind of a holding place for a moment while I might be getting a degree or I might be um, just uh, saying I need to support myself. And the question that, um, uh, that Richard Rohr asks in Falling Upward and some other authors ask as well, this season of life is asking, what makes me significant, who will go with me, and how will I support myself? And so those questions are really, you can say they're practical sort of outward questions, but they dip into the deeper question of this era of really where will I be known? And, uh, and, and the flow of, uh, of being, of doing, and what is my identity all reconnect. The other thing that happens here is that every time now in this phase that we enter a new phase, the first 11 years or the first two questions, being, am I beloved, and what will I do, come into play. And they just come into play at a, um, at a deeper level. So somebody moves to a new town. The question, one question they're asking who will really get to know me? Who will be my friends? Mm -hmm. After they've finished a course of study, and, the, and they may know what they're going to do in a job, but they don't know what they're going to do sort of after that. Why do you think people join gyms and mm -hmm. all, uh, all sorts of other uh, kinds of places? And, and they're asking again, who are they? So very often at a nodal point in life, when you get married, you're asking actually the same question, how am I going to live with this person? And, and those intimacy questions, because this person that you're married to, they seem to be in every space. Uh, you, you don't have separate compartments in the refrigerator like you did with roommates, you know, and you don't have separate little drawers in, the, um, in a bathroom. And I, I mean, they're it's like a tree. They're everywhere you go. <laughs> they don't <laughs> go thinking, away. No, they don't go away. And, and so, so sometimes you come to a place and say, I'm not sure I want it to be this known. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but that's often because we've lived a bit isolated be, before that time that this is just a brand new experience. But the key thing is each nodal time in life, a loss, a move, mm -hmm. a change in living pulls forward the questions of belovedness, of competency, of identity, and then of intimacy. So you're going to go back and revisit those and probably revisit sometimes holes in those if yes. you didn't receive those. Yes. That gets pulled forward yes. again. So they're very... Uh, foundational. They build on yes. one another. Now, here's the other thing that happens in your 20s in that first place is you and I have so much testosterone and estrogen <laughs> that we say we are not going to do life the way it was done the first number of years. I mean, we're not going to be like somebody in our family that we didn't want to be like, or we're not going to do the same things that we did when we were younger. We are going to do it better. And we have enough energy to do that. And whatever wasn't right often submerges. And then when we hit the next stage, we have less energy in our late 30s and 40s. And whatever was not resolved in those early years then tends to rise up and say, do you think we could take a look at this? Mm -hmm. and, that's and it interrupts life <laughs> in some really inconvenient yes. ways. So the question for the midlife, approximately 35 to 65, which is a long stretch here. Mm -hmm. How can I embrace and contribute to the world? So it says, re-examining my life so that I'm aligned with who and what God made me to be and to do extended and extend the kingdom of God. Um, 
So this midlife piece, what else do you want to say about that? Well, I just want to say that is, that is the heartbeat of Listen to My Life. I mean, it is the, it is, this tool is a, is just a designed tool of the recognition of God and responding to God. I don't, there may be another tool out there, but that incorporates spiritual practice, that incorporates um, scripture in a fresh way, that incorporates good adult learning and, um, and uh, psychological type questions of integrating your story, of really inviting you to bring all that has been into the present moment and re-examine it mm-hmm. um, and re-examine it and say, you know, what needs to go? What needs to stay? What um, uh, a picture that I had, um, I have um, um, a friend who's a parent of young adults and in the basement, she has a box for each kid of all their memorabilia, you know, from high school and all of that. So sometimes this has to go to them. Now, they're in their 20s. They've probably, you know, forgotten a lot of it. But that's the kind of stuff that ha- needs to be given to them, opened up and pulled forward, either in pictures or mementos or remembered experiences and documented on the maps that, um, the visual maps that are given and saying, where do these play a part in the ongoing story of my life? Mm-hmm. Where have they been hindering the way in which I really desire to live, and um, uh, and where can I see the beauty and goodness of God that I had never seen it when the event happened because I didn't have the capacity or um, you know any variety of reasons. How do you respond to that? Well, this is this is a lot of um, growing up, you know, Amen. And, and growing up in a sense of. Just the profound nature of working through and trying to settle my identity and where my identity rests. How did I get a perception of, 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 of who I am? Am I on a track that somebody else expected of me? And is it really what I feel like I'm designed to do and to be in the world? Um, to... Because there's a lot of angst associated with people that have um, that have taken on somebody else's story and tried to live it out, yeah, and because they've been living for the approval of someone else, not God's approval, and not paying attention to the design that God imprinted in them um, along the way. I think yeah. what I'm noticing here too, as you're you're talking, Sybil, is that. As I go through each of these stages, I'm picking up a couple things. I'm picking up, well, true narratives, but I'm also picking up false narratives along the way. And I kind of just kind of keep carrying them Mm -hmm. (laughs) along. And then I kind of get to this midlife, especially, and I've got to sort out what I've been carrying in the trunk behind me. (laughs) Because usually you hit something where something's not working anymore. And so, and the other thing I'm picking up is coping mechanisms along the way. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is where really... (laughs) To cover up the trunk of stuff. Yes, the Enneagram (laughs) can be a helpful tool. And it is also a place where the coping mechanisms have been God's gift. Uh They have been a way that has helped us move. The other aspect is... In that or those early years, we need the development of an ego. You you need the development of um, competency, and I can do this and that, because at some point, God is going to say to you, as He did to Abram, Abram's well past this age, and He said, "All right, Abram, I want you to leave your stuff, this, and I want to take you." to a place whose builder and architect is God. Mm -hmm. And that's where this question comes in. And again, not everybody flows in this timeline because suffering happens and that. So it's, it's not, it's not a, a a perfect uh, place where it happens, but this space is a space to, 
the word that's in here is realignment with who God has made me to be. And we need to have lived enough life, made enough mistakes that we are more willing to look soberly and not so seriously, soberly, not so seriously, mm-hmm. able to kind of laugh at ourselves. Really, did I do that? Who was doing that? Mm-hmm. Was that the real me? And, and, and then to do that in community. And I think um, if I can go to the church, the church knows how uh, overall knows how to help us recognize God and invites us into that. There are some good methodologies and ways of discipling in the ways of God. That's sort of an outward way of uh, how do I pray? How do I recognize the Holy Spirit, the power of Scripture in my life, uh, worship, many aspects. And then where what are my gifts and how can I serve? And those are really all external, outward. And then when we hit this 35 to 65 space, the church doesn't know how to work with us well on this inner journey because it is... Um, Messy? Yes, that is, <laughs> that is the operative word. It is, I'm a mess, you're a mess, and we're in this mess together, and how? And and God says, "Come, I will work with you in sorting it." Mm-hmm. And and it often takes a little bit more personal work. There's not a good. It, it, it it's hard to program it's around not this because yeah. it you know a, a lot of churches, especially the larger ones, they need to program for the masses. Yes, and people go through this part of the journey so individually and so uniquely, and it has to do with their story and everything. It's not a teach at something, no. teach at someone kind of a curriculum. It's a how do you invite people into a reflective process that helps them to get in touch with how God wants to lead and guide them and what his invitations for their life happen to be. And so you're helping people actually discover the truth that resides in them. Mm-hmm. You're no longer pouring into them. And we had a conversation earlier about facilitation, but the process in Listen to My Life is a facilitation process is that we recognize that the spirit, that the truth, that the goodness resides in the person, and our work is to help them discover mm-hmm. Uh, what that is, and and when a person discovers it and and gets it, they get it. Right to create the environment where souls can come out of hiding. Yes, and we did a podcast episode just about that particular phrase, and. There is uh, so much to be said for how do you create the environment and how do you offer the questions that um, we don't know what the answers are. We don't know where they're going to lead. There is no right or wrong answer to it, but it's something that someone can't answer for you. These are questions you have to answer yourself. Right. And um, if you open all those kinds of questions up, knowing that God loves you and knowing that God made you uniquely, knowing that no matter what you've been handed, God has a good plan for you. Um, You have a chance to reshape what motivates you at the core. Am Am I going to keep living my life only feeling I have value because I perform? Um, you know, the, the, there's an opening for grace right there. Yes. For grace to invade. And right. so anyway, we're going to have to leave midlife um, at uh, 35 to 65 and then 66 and beyond um, the mature years. The core question is, how do I live with gratitude? How am I present to what is? And I love these two questions and uh, the idea here uh, that it, you can see that it goes from more of maybe a being, a doing kinds of questions to a being. Yes. Like, how am I going to be in the midst of whatever my circumstances happen to be? Right. And if you read the 
community experience living in unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and others, seeing the light in all things and living in peace. So there's a line by um, Ignatius um, and, and some others, but he coined it, but the aspect of seeing God in all things. So because I've done some of this earlier work and that the capacity to to be present to what is and to actually cease striving uh, really allows me to become not elderly, but become an elder. Mm-hmm. And many cultures have affirmed that. Our culture has dismissed it, mm-hmm. has dismissed the, the wisdom. And, and one of the ways we've dismissed it, we have invited people in this age group to become childish. Mm-hmm. We've invited them to become childish, narcissistic, uh, which is focused on themselves, and uh, and it is a detriment to their families, to their communities, to their yeah. churches. And sometimes to have enough resources to say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I have the money to buy whatever kind of toys I want. Yes. Um, and while in and of itself, having the toys and having the freedom, there's nothing wrong with that, but to miss what it means to become an elder in your community would be a big miss for you in the, for the gifts that you can receive in being able to be in relationship with younger people, but also the gifts that you can give and, and implant. And there's some questions stirring in me that um, from some of my recent life experiences that it's like, okay, what is it? I mean, one of my core motivations from early on that I can trace through my story using these questions as well is the idea of multiplication. You know, that's a theme that runs through my story. That it, I'm just not terribly interested unless it multiplies good. It just, you know, stuff that stuff that I can help multiply. This is why you like hostas. <laughs> the plants that uh, that we separated from our garden and planted uh, in it at the at the Springs Retreat Center where Sybil and Dick live, and also in Jones Yard say, too, yeah, yeah. and yards. many other many others. That is multiplication. Oh my gosh! And 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 well, that's what best listen to my life is for me too. In terms of, I know the value of this, and to be able to, as we used to say in a job I had, um, you know, at a ministry job and I was in strategic planning at the time, how can we help the blessing of God in one place be the blessing of God in multiple places? And that particular phrase um, is is just one way to name that, that mm-hmm. energy that's in me. And so I take it, you know, we are, we are really out of time here. Is there any, (laughs) any, any uh, closing thing? Mm -hmm. I just want to give an example, a very brief example of that, that I think is going on in our lives. And it's, it's a small example, but it's a simple one. Um, Our pastor, um, who is, when we started going to the church is 30, was 33. And we invited him to be able to come to the, our home at the Springs uh, and work on his sermons. And he began doing that, and he comes every Tuesday except when he's out of town. I mean, it's a, it's a given statement that nothing violates. And so he comes, and we give him our front room, and then we have lunch with him, and, uh, and we just listen. Now, again, uh, I mean, uh, it's now a little more known because I've just spoken it, but it's a quiet activity, it's being present to him. It's using our resources for good. We have mm-hmm. this room that's available, and it's a part of really um, adding to the next generation. And it becomes a it it is a big gift and to I him. You, it's a gift to him, but also your congregation that he gets to think about his message and then have a conversation with Dick and Sybil Towner about it. Mm-hmm. Now so, there's a gift. So anyway, I I just say it's not big things, but it's that. And I think many of us have that kind of way of being grateful Mm 
mm-hmm. of being grateful and living in the present moment wherever we are. And I think if we ask God, what would that look like for me where I am, no matter where that is, I think he would delight in being able to open a space in you to ponder and consider maybe something that you have never considered before. Mm, so, so that's a good way to... There's some great ways to take next steps if, if something stirred in you here. Um, one is to get a copy of Listen to My Life Maps for Recognizing and Responding to God in My Story. Thumb through it. Think about it. Pray about it. Decide if you want to invite some friends along for the journey to do it together. Um, contact us and we can maybe put you in touch with a facilitator. You know, we can do this at a distance too. Um, many of us uh, can can either do some spiritual direction or some coaching through these materials um, at a distance. We've also got a virtual coaching group that's going to start September 10th, 2019. We'd love to invite you to join in on that. Well, you'd be led through these, uh, the, the materials in a group format with the very important aspect of being able to uh, be listened to by others and also listen to others, which is a key part of the process. And then um, we're also going to be doing some facilitator certification uh, November 18th in the Chicago area. It's a two and a half day workshop. And um, we'd like for you to have gone through the Listen to My Life materials. Um, So that's why we put that virtual coaching group um, up just ahead of it. So we'd like to uh, thank all of our people that uh, support Listen to My Life through uh, Patreon, our Patreon website that uh, is a thank you gift. You get audio meditations every week. Um, I hear that people are really enjoying those. We're getting some great feedback on those. Uh, yes, for a, a donation of $5 a month or more to support the work of uh, Listen to My Life and the podcasts uh, that we do here, that's um, you can uh, donate there at uh, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash one life maps o-n-e-l-i-f-e-m-a-p-s you can get um, a link to um, our website onelifemaps.com right in the show notes as well and we're going to put a pdf um, up online of this handout that we often use about these life questions we've just talked about today you know on that note sharon i guess i want to give credit where credit is due and sybil um, put this together, but not alone, with our dear friend of ours, Susan Shadid, who really helps form and craft this, the two of them together, yeah. and it has been uh, used and shared by many. I mean, I sat here today, I've heard this many times and took down some new notes, so yeah, this is uh, good stuff. We, we love both uh, Susan and Sybil. Oh, Susan, we love you. Just, just saying. Big shout out. So, thanks for being with me, Sybil. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Joan. All right. Take Once care. Again. It was a good thing. Many blessings, everyone. Have a great week. Have you thought, I don't know myself anymore? Have you wondered, is there something more? Are you at a crossroads in life and asking, which way will lead me toward expressing more of who I am made to be? Are you looking for a way to understand the restlessness you feel inside? Are you seeking a deeper spiritual life and desire to rediscover who you are through God's eyes? You're ready for the life mapping experience of Listen to My Life. Go to onelifemaps.com to purchase your portfolio of visual life maps. While you're there, check out our upcoming virtual coaching groups, live workshops, and options for you to facilitate the Listen to My Life experience with others. That's onelifemaps.com. O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S.com.